You thought I was going to give a fuck for Yeah. Okay. All right. So we learned about um, the effect of the Chochmah of the godly soul, at, known as Amuna, which is the, the sense of Hashem's truth. And we spoke about um, this idea that Amuna is an independent thing from one's understanding. And on the contrary, when one tries to understand and contextualize Hashem, then the presence of Hashem <coughs> somewhat vanishes, right? As, as the Pasuk says, because I was like an animal, that's why um, I was with you. Right? We spoke about that idea about that when a person feels the need to justify their sense of Hashem, the actual real sense of Hashem withdraws. That was the last thing we talked about, yeah? Okay. Now we're ready to come to the, the punchline, which is we're on the end of the left-hand column, last line, therefore. Therefore, even the most worthless of worthless and transgressors of Israelites, in majority of cases, sacrifice their lives for the sanctity of God's name and suffer harsh torture rather than deny the one God. Although they be boors and illiterate and ignorant of God's greatness. Okay. So now we have come to oh, the second... It. What? No, there. I found it. I found it. Yeah, found it. So now we have come to the second manifestation of the Chacham of the Godly Soul, which is known in Hebrew as Mesiris Nefesh. Right. Now, um, we're going to play a game. You ready to play a game? Yeah. What is the proof that is used in Tanya to prove that every Jew has a godly soul? Very good, except you slightly misquoted the puzzle. Bapa. Yes. That God blew into him, meaning Adam, the soul, the breath of life. Okay. Um, that just proves that Adam, by the way, had a godly soul. How do we get that every Jew has a godly soul? Yeah, but you're not Adam. So how do we get every Jew? So the Alter goes on to say that we say a similar expression in the morning blessings. You blew the soul into me. So we see the same idea. Okay. So what is his evidence? His evidence is from our tradition, right? From the words of the Torah, from the words that were um, instituted by the sages that we say in our prayers. There is a... I should put this. A incorrect idea that floats around, which is that the idea that a Jew is willing to give up their life rather than um, desecrate the oneness of God, rather than create a chil Hashem, rather than worship idols, this somehow is a proof that a um, that a Jew has a godly soul. Now we just read this idea that every Jew has this quality of mysterious nefesh of self sacrifice. In context, is this being used to prove anything? Did he, he use this idea that, that the majority of Jews will, will, will sacrifice their lives and, and suffer harsh torture rather than deny God? Does he use that to prove anything? Is that being used as evidence for something in the text? And if not, then what is it being brought for? Look inside and try and find an answer. 
question? The idea that a Jew will sacrifice their life rather than deny God, is he using that to prove anything? Or is he using it for some other purpose? For me, up this phenomenon. To prove that every Jew believes in God? No. To prove that Amuna does not fit in one's he's understanding. How do you know he's not trying to prove anything? In the majority of cases? No. Basic English. Is it the therefore? Yeah, the word therefore. The therefore is not the thing you use to introduce your evidence, right? The therefore is the thing you use to introduce the point. a point you're trying to conclude, right? So we have this, like, this phenomenon called Messiah Sinevich, which we're going to talk about it, right? And how is it linked to what we did previously in the chapter? It's the consequence, if you understand what we've learned up until now, right? What follows from that is an explanation of this phenomenon called mysterious nefesh, of self-sacrifice. So is self-sacrifice of mysterious nefesh the thing that is being, is explaining other things or is it the thing being explained? It's the thing being explained. Okay? And once we understand, once we understand it, we can then maybe utilize that idea in other ways. Okay, so let me just give you a little bit of sense of what's, what's happening. You've heard of this thing called lightning? Lightning yeah. phenomena? Okay. Mm-hmm. Can you explain lightning? Not sophisticated, just a basic explanation. <laughs> I'm asking you a science question, like you know, something you might have learned in middle Positive school. negative electrons? Well, there's only there's only negatively charged electrons. Oh. Okay, but you're okay. <laughs> coming. They're hitting something and causing light. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna give you an over over simplistic idea. Okay, you have a lot of things called negative um, charged particles or electrons over here and a big absence of them over here. And since for some reason Shen decides things should like have some kind of a equivalence between them, what happens if you have a large surplus over here and a big absence over here? Osmosis. <laughs> Did you just throw that word randomly just to be funny? No, they like each other out. They Google each other down. okay. And so the surplus over here goes over here, and that happens with great, uh, so there's this very intense transfer of energy, which produces effects such as light and sound. Yeah? Good? Okay. Now that you understand that, could you then take that same idea and apply it other places? Like, I don't know, take a battery and, you know, make a circuit and have, you know, a surplus of electrons over here and you know, an absence over there and they'll kind of flow around and as they flow around, they might make something happen, right? So once you understand a phenomenon, you understand what makes it tick, so to speak, you can then apply that in other areas, right? That makes sense? So there's this phenomenon called Masir's Nefesh, self-sacrifice. If we understood Chachma and we understood the manifestation of Chachma, its effect as a Muna, then we'll understand what's really going on in Masir's Nefesh. 
And then, so we really understand what's going on with Mysterious Nefesh, we can maybe employ the idea of Mysterious Nefesh, the reality of Mysterious Nefesh, in ways other than the kind of natural phenomena. Right? The same way a computer right, is not a natural phenomenon, but it, but it harnesses the power of electricity the same way lightning does, right? You first have to understand how the natural phenomena works, and then you can apply it in more directed, dare I say, artificial ways. Does that make sense? So for this whole discussion to work, we just need to take the reality of mysterious nefesh for granted. Then we explain it based on what we've learned. And we say, ah, that's what mysterious nefesh is. Well, then it turns out mysterious nefesh is a little different than what I thought it was. Maybe I can apply mysterious nefesh in ways other than occurs naturally, which sets the stage for the subsequent chapters of Tanya. Okay? So is mysterious nefesh self-sacrifice being used as evidence for anything? No. It's the phenomenon we want to understand. When we understand it, then we can apply it in more creative, newer ways. Okay, so what is Mysterious Nefesh? Let us start there. Um, I want to actually talk about the idea, and then we'll go back into the wording. What is Mysterious Nefesh? So to understand Mysterious Nefesh, we need to first be very, very grateful that we do not know what Mysterious Nefesh is. That's the first thing. Now, you may be saying, well, I know what mysterious nefesh is, and if you do, um, I'm sorry. What is mysterious nefesh? Mysterious nefesh is the phenomena. Um, Actually, I should be nice. I'm going to make a trigger warning. If anyone gets disturbed by things being very, very blunt about how things have looked historically, you can leave now, and I won't think any worse of you, but I'm going to be very blunt about what mysterious nefesh looks like. Okay. Um, mysterious nefesh is that people subjugated themselves voluntarily to horrific violence and even perpetrated horrific violence in certain cases on their own loved ones to avoid accepting other religions. So for instance, during the Crusades, it was not an I wouldn't say it happened um, all the time, but it was not an uncommon thing for um, people knew that the crusaders were coming and people would be um, subjugated to torture if they didn't um, accept baptism. And it was not an uncommon thing for the community to gather together and all the heads of households to kill their wives and children and then commit suicide before the crusaders came or for people to subject, to allow themselves to be burned alive rather than um, renounce Judaism, or for people to be slowly tortured to death, etc., etc., etc. Now, um, since the past, I don't know what you want to say, um, World War II, if outside of the Soviet Union, um, so for the most part, Jewish people have not faced things remotely like Mysterious Nefesh. And so it becomes a very theoretical thing. But it's important to realize that for the vast majority of, of Jewish history, um, basically from the Perm story and onwards, right, the idea that, um, you know, at one point it was paganism and then it became Christianity and then Islam, um, people were faced with the choice of renouncing whatever nominal notion of Jewishness was available to them. Because again, they're not necessarily talking about people who are big rabbis and big scholars. 
um, or suffering tremendously, okay? not just financially, physical torture, death, etc., etc., etc. This is a, a, a characteristic of Jewish life, unfortunately. Now, again, since World War II, has this been a characteristic of Jewish life? Okay, one of the ways you can see this, I'm just going to mention this. Um, again, the, the Soviet Union was, was obviously an exception to this, but um, if someone treats us in an anti-Semitic fashion, what is the standard response of a Jew nowadays, emotionally? Is it... Bothered. Right? There's a certain how dare they indignation, that's not okay, right? Now, is that always been how it is? The standard thing was like, you know, well, you know, they didn't kill anybody, right? They didn't take away my property. So like, okay, keep your head down. Don't, don't, don't annoy them. And like, well, you know, eventually Mashiach will come. Right? The, the, the persecution, um, and, and again, I'm not going to be unnecessarily graphic, but you, you could read the histories of these things. It's very, very, very brutal. Okay. Um, and a lot of it, people had a way out. And that created some very serious tension because is it a rule that every time a Jew is faced with the choice of denying God, denying their Jewishness, all, they, would, they, would, they would undergo any amount of torture, any amount of suffering in order to avoid that? Is that, a, is that an automatic rule? No. Okay. What does Dr. Basay and Tanya says? It's the majority of cases. But that means there's also a minority. How do you think the majority viewed the minority? I want to flesh out this phenomenon. Before we get into what Tanya says about the phenomenon, how do you think the majority viewed that minority? For instance, how do you think Sephardic Jewry felt about those Jews who accepted Christianity and stayed in Spain and Portugal and only then got out later when it turns out it was more difficult than they thought? Resentful. Extremely resentful. Like, there's a lot... When... when um, there's a famous response of Rashi um, regarding the prohibition of once a Jew who accepted Christianity under the threat of the of, of, of uh, Crusaders or whatever it was, um, if they come back to Judaism, right, that we're not allowed to ostracize them and, 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 and denigrate them publicly and to make them feel bad for their previous choices once they've done tshuva. But why did Rashi have to write that response up? People are doing it. Okay. In other words, there was, a, there was, a, there was a, a very strong sense that you, you pay a very high price sometimes for being a Jew, and that's part of the deal. And that's just what, that's what the way it is. And the phenomenon, what's interesting is that this phenomenon does not correlate to your degree of piety, to how righteous you are. It's not that the person who's the most scholarly, the most the biggest Talmudic scholar, the more, who's the most careful of mitzvahs, the person who has the greatest year shemaim, fear of heaven, they're the people who have this kind of devotion. And then, you know, as you kind of move down the rung of religiosity, people become more and more comfortable with uh, accepting, you know, idolatry in its different forms. It's just not, the, you know, the person who... who maybe is a Shabbos violator and dishonest in business and has no fear of God, when the Crusaders comes also, you know, doesn't, doesn't capitulate and maybe even, you know, goes that extra step to make sure that, God forbid, his wife and children don't convert. Okay? And this same thing happened in Ashkenazic countries and in Sephardic countries in the Middle Ages. And, and obviously the specifics are different. Okay? 
And that's an interesting phenomenon. Okay? There's this sense that there's a line that Jews can't seem to cross in the majority of cases. And even though that they cross all the other lines, as he says, right? They're people that are very lowly, they're transgressors. Okay. Now I'm gonna give, I'm gonna give some, uh, some different manifestations of a similar idea, okay? It's not the exact same idea, because I, I wanna flesh out the idea a little bit. There, there's a phenomena that this is more common in, in um, I would say, the modern world, as a, as a, where a person has a very hard time. Again, am I going to say everybody has this? No, but a, people have a very hard deno- time actively denying that they are Jewish, even though they don't actually do anything in their life that affirms their Jewishness. Okay, now, am I telling you that this is the exact same thing? No, but the underlying thing, when we get the explanation of serious Serious is, you'll see that it's a similar idea. It's a manifestation of the same phenomena. Okay, just like, you know, you know, your heart beating is also a manifestation of the power of electricity, even though it's not a lightning bolt. Looks very good. Okay, so what do you have? You have a person who does nothing in their life, makes no choices whatsoever to affirm their Jewishness. Like, not even talking about keeping halacha, even participating in things. And yet, very often, if that person is put to, you know, has to like overtly deny their association with, with, with the Jewish people, they'll find it very difficult, sometimes impossible to do so, even though there's a very high social cost, not necessarily a very high physical cost. And again, why is that phenomenon seem similar to Mesir Snefesh, the actual martyrdom that Jews have suffered throughout the ages? Not, again, I'm not telling you it's exactly the same thing, but why, why am I grouping them together? What's the similarity there? Non-explainable feeling. There's a, there's, a, there's a sense that there's a, a level of inability to detach yourself from something that you don't seem particularly predisposed to to begin with. <laughs> That's the phenomenon of the serious nefesh. The phenomenon of Mysterious Nefesh, um, and, and we're, we're going to go into the text and go in more detail, the phenomenon of Mysterious Nefesh is not um, an expression of one's personal desires, one's personal commitment, one's personal feelings towards Hashem, towards Jewishness, towards whatever. That, it's not what it is. That exists, but that's not what Mysterious Nefesh is. Mysterious Nefesh is the opposite. Messias Nefesh is the discovery, sometimes quite traumatically, and quite unexpectedly, that there are certain lines you just can't seem to cross. Okay? Um, there's all sorts of stories that illustrate this. Um, say, these are all true stories. Not all of them have happened. Um, I, I will tell you the one that is told very often in yeshivas. One of them is told very often in yeshivas. Um, there, there was a 
Jew who was called a Cantonist. Was a, can- a Cantonist is a... Um, the Russians decided to help force the Jews into assimilation. They were going to draft a certain quota of Jewish children to the Russian army for periods of service ranging in the decades, so like 20 years, 30 years. Um, so this was a phenomenon that existed. That uh, This is in the, the, the middle of the 1800s, um, and there are different areas or different rules about it, but Jewish children... You know, we're talking five, six, seven, eight, nine-year-olds, ten-year-olds were then taken by force and drafted into the Russian army for periods of service of, you know, twenty-something years. Now, so the story is there was once a Cantonist who was, he was quite um, gifted, quite talented, and he rose through the ranks. Um, and you could, if you tell the story to Fabrin, could like drag it out for 15 minutes, but I'm not going to do so. <laughs> and the only thing that he knew was that he had been born to a Jewish family. He had, like, didn't have any recollections anymore of, of Judaism. He had been taken away from his family at five, six years old. But he knew that he was Jewish. And he knew like certain things, like Jews have a different religion, right? They don't have the, they don't, they don't practice Christianity. They don't, they're not Christians, right? Um, but he was, and he, he, lived his life and he was very successful and he rose in rank and rose in rank and rose in rank until um, he got to a very high position and in order to um, progress he would need to convert to Christianity. But if he did progress the next rank he would, he would kind of enter the upper echelons of Russian society. Um, he would be, you know, there was there was a marriage proposal to, to the daughter of a nobleman. Was, he, was a, you know, he, would, he would really have made it. Um, and so what did he decide to do? He decided to convert to Christianity, marry this non-Jewish woman, and you know, move on in life. Because, you know, vague childhood memories from when you're five, you know, are like nice and cute and nostalgic, but like life is life. So... There was a day set where he was going to go through the baptism and the whole thing, and then there was going to be a marriage afterwards. And um, the Russian capital, um, St. Petersburg, there's a lot of river, there's river built on the rivers, there's bridges. And um, as he's in the, the, the carriage going to the church, he starts to feel very uncomfortable with his decision. But see, at this point, he has a problem. What is his problem? He already agreed, right? You know, if he had, if he had, if he decided just to like not move forward, does not move forward. But now he's agreed. Now there's a whole thing. There's a whole ceremony, and so what did he decide to do? He felt like he couldn't go forward, but he felt he had no way out, and so he jumped up. He jumped off the bridge and killed himself. Now is that an expression of his piety and his devotion to God? Now, that's, that's an extreme version, but, but, but that's the other thing. This is a phenomenon. People are, they, they have this thing, they can't seem to... to so how do some people, how could they? Okay, so, so one question is, one question is, what's causing this? And if we say it has something to do with the inherent nature of a Jew, then it should, happen, it should apply to everybody. Okay. What I would like to do is like this. I want to learn this in stages. So the first stage is what we're doing right now, which I just want to just kind of familiarize everyone's self with what we mean without being too technical. The next stage I want to do is I want to learn the text inside and go slowly understand all of the wording. 
After that, there are two questions that I would like to address. Question number one is, why is it only the majority of cases? And number two, how do we reconcile this with free will? And because the idea that somehow there's like this automatic button you can push on a Jew that makes him do stuff is a little bit um, not a very Jewish idea. Okay? Um, are we going to finish all of that today? Maybe. See how it goes. Okay. The second question is, how does this idea consistent with free will? Now, I do want to mention that chapter 19 is going to be elucidating, as he goes on to say, he's going to elucidate this idea of mysterious nefesh further. So right now, he's, he's, he's saying that what we've learned about Chachma is going to help us understand mysterious nefesh, this idea of self-sacrifice. But, but then there's going to be, it's not a complete explanation. The complete explanation is in chapter 19. So we're not going to get through everything. Okay, so... Um, I want again, I want to talk more about the idea in general. When a person um, experiences mysterious nefesh, what does it feel like? Now, obviously, we're going to generalize, right? Everybody has unique experiences. But what would it feel like to experience Mr. Snapfish? I really feel. You do, actually. You're always feeling. I mean, the joke goes is that the, 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 the non-Jew comes, comes to the Jew and puts a gun to says, says, convert to Christianity. And he says, no, I'm not going to do it. He says, well, I'm going to kill you. And he says, well, at least let me make the blessing and martyrdom first. And he makes the blessing and then the gun misfires. He's like, no, no. Finish the okay. But, you know. <laughs> assuming, assuming you survive, right? You're, assuming you're not dead yet. You feel stuff. You experience stuff, right? So you can't interrupt between the bracha and the mitzvah, right? Is there a bracha? There is, actually. You want to you wanna, you wanna hear, uh, uh, you hear a, a, a real story? Yeah. Yeah. This is a true story. <laughs> this is a true story. It depends how much time you have. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It's a true story that actually happened. There was a chassid named Itcha the Masmid. Masmid means diligent one. He, he, he used to study Torah for you know, 18, 19 hours a day regularly. Um, his name was, his name was uh, Rabbi Yitzchak Horowitz. If you know any Horowitz or Gorowitz Chabad people, they are often descended or related to him. Anyway, he... Um, very, very, very special holy man. And I forgot who the other chassid was. Um, my, my mind is blanking on it right now. They were in, and I don't remember the town either, the town is known, town during World War II. Um, and the Nazis, as they often did, rounded up all the Jews and put them in the show. And it didn't, people figured out very quickly what was happening. And you can imagine people became quite hysterical. Um... And Itcha the Masmid and the other Chassid got up on the bima, And they quieted everyone down. And they said, we're now going to do a very special mitzvah that very few people have the opportunity to do, the mitzvah of dying, Al-Kiddush Hashem, of sanctifying God's name. And they made the bracha. Everyone should make the bracha. 
and then they put their arms on each other's shoulders and they started dancing like some Chostar Hakafas and they danced and danced and danced until the show was burned out. There are a few people got out and survived because, you know, it was burned down. Some people escaped and that's how we know the story, but that's, you know. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, it depends how much time a person has. You know, and the person times, they say vidu, they confess their sins, they say shema, and it's a bracha. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you appreciate the value of doing mitzvahs, it's mitzvah to die, or Kiddush Hashem, to die sanctifying God's name, and so mitzvah should be done with a joy. Rabbi Akiva did it, and uh, there were other people who done it. Did that guy die or no? It's the Yeah, it's the Masman. was burned. Why? I don't know if he died from smoke inhalation or it burns, but yes, he died. There were a few people who, either they got out or they, they, they got out from the, the building was burning or they got where, or managed to hide. I don't know, but that's the you know, I heard. Know story from the, there, were, there were people who survived. I, I don't know how they survived. They survived from, because they escaped the building which was on fire or they were, or they, or they were able to break out beforehand, but they... Yeah. That's okay. So, what does it feel like, though? Okay, so what does it feel like, Mr. Zemin? Again, there's a broad range of. Uh... Like, there's no other choice? So, so, here's the thing. When a person feels like they have no other choice, how do they feel? Mm-hmm. Sure. Trapped. What? Trapped. So, I'll tell you a story of a chassid. Um, he was in Siberia and um, he did not, he was not willing to work on Shabbos. And so he would hide on Shabbos so he would be able to avoid work. And eventually the, the, the guards realized that they weren't going to break him, so they left him alone. So he would find different places, he'd go up to the top of like a t- lumber pile or whatever, just like be out of sight so not to annoy him, and he wouldn't work on Shabbos. Um, and at one point, a new commander, a new superintendent, whatever it came, and he decided he's going to break him. And he told the guards to find him on Shabbos and to make him work. And if he doesn't work, they should beat him until he works. And they beat him, 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 and, they beat him, and, they beat him, and he didn't. And he wouldn't work. He wouldn't move. And eventually, they beat him so much that he broke down. He says, that's it. I give up. I give up. Kill me. Not I give up. I work on Shabbos. I'm not. I don't know. It's too hard to fight you guys. So kill me. Like, you know, he broke. But which side did he break on? Physical. Right. Now is that now? In other words, is there a kind of an inner strength in that? In other words. Yes, there's 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 a holding on to everything, but when but when a person when a person um, feels they have no choice because something outside of them is forcing them to do something, it's very different. You feel like you have no choice because this is something you just cannot do. That doesn't feel like you're being coerced. It actually feels very liberating. It feels like a kind of a, 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 a being in touch with yourself. It feels, and I'll use this word, even though I've already spoken about how it's a cheap word to use, it, there's a certain authenticity to it. In other words, 
experiencing Mesiris Nefesh has a quality that you, you, you come away with a sense there's a lot more to you than you thought. And that deeper part of you, that, more, that, that, uh, that other part of you, again, if the person survives, it feels more genuine. So it's not like, oh, I can't, like, like something is preventing me. It's like, I actually can't. Okay. Um, there's certain things you cannot do. I'm going to use this now, I'm going to move on to psychologically for a second. There's certain things you cannot do. What's something that you cannot do? Fly. That's cheap. I want something else. You're right, you can't fly, but that's, that's cheap. Like, everybody knows you can't do that. Read others' minds. That's right. You can't really read others' minds. Now, what happens when you accept the fact that you really can't read anybody's mind? Do you feel better or worse? Both. Better. Better. So why don't people often feel worse? Because they don't feel like they can't. They feel like something's preventing them. In other words, they feel like deep down, like I should be able to, like I really, it is within me to know what you're thinking. But some real, something's preventing me. So now you feel like obstructed. But what if you realize it's, like, it's really beyond you? Like knowing what's going on in someone else's thoughts, what someone else's emotions truly is just beyond you. Controlling of the person is just beyond you. Running anything outside your own self is beyond you. If a person can really have a sense that they are unable to do those things, right? There's a kind of a self-discovery in that that is very liberating. Right? That makes sense? Okay. So what if a person were to discover that they cannot cross certain lines when it comes to Hashem, to Judaism? What does that feel like? If you realize it's you that liberating, you feel separate from you that trapped. Now, so that's, Messias Nefesh has that quality. Mysterious Nefesh has that quality. Now, does that mean the person is, is necessarily embracing martyrdom with joy? That's already a different thing, right? He's like, I would still like to live. I might not be able to read your thoughts and I might not be able to control you, but I'd still like you to do certain things, right? I mean, embracing the mitzvah of dying on Kiddushim is a whole nother level, right? No, not, but there is, a, there is something that feels... Not like something is preventing me from doing it, but somehow I actually can't do it. And so you feel extremely inhibited in the one sense and extremely liberated in the other sense. And those are not contradictory. Do most people go through a process of not want, like... So I'm going to tell you another story. This story, I, this is another story they say in yeshivas about Messias Nefesh, which illustrates a slightly different point, but it, 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 it falls off of this. There was once a, a parrot, so, so basically a, a, a feudal landowner, and he, he basically, he owned the land, he owned the resources, he owned the people, and he had a few villages, and uh, 
he had a thing. He liked to, he was very full of himself, so he liked to go around his villages and have everyone give him a lot of respect and honor. And so every, every so often, every few months, he would make a tour of all the villages under his domain. And he would have that in each village, they would hire a wagon driver that village to take him to the next village as a sign of their loyalty, their fealty, their subjugation to him. And um, in one village, they hired a Jew to be the wagon driver to take him to the next village. And when this part, this landowner, saw that it was a Jew, he decided to have a good time. And um, he took out a cross that he had with him and he says, I want you to kiss this cross. And the Jew said, uh, Your Excellency, parts, whatever, uh, I'll take you from place to place, but I'm not kissing the cross. Um, remember, the, a person who's working as a wagon driver, I mean, a person who's working as a wagon driver is not exactly, as a general rule, the most you know, scholarly, the most devout, the most religious person. Um, Uh, usually also not the most sophisticated person. <laughs> I'm not kissing him. So he got annoyed. He says, what do you mean? I'm in charge. I say kiss. You're going to kiss. He says, I'm not kissing it. He says, how dare you? So you, you, you if you don't kiss it, I'll, 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 I'll kill you. He says, I'm not. <laughs> the more he pushes, the more the Jew's not budging. So at one point he pulls out his sword, puts it on his throat and says, you kiss it now or I'm cutting your throat. And the Jew says, no, not, not kissing the cross. And the um, Paretz was so like, taken aback, he was not expecting this kind of reaction, um, that he cancels the whole trip and goes back to his uh, estate. And there's a follow-up with him and his priest, which is not really relevant for our purposes. There's a second half of the story. After the story, to finish the story, what, what, the, what the traditions of say is, what happened to that wagon driver afterwards? He went crazy. What did he just discover about himself? Is he who he thought he was? Did he know how to deal with that? Yeah, there's something called psychological trauma, right? Where your your sense of yourself and your reality breaks, and you don't know how to put it back together. It's not such an obvious thing that a person experiences mysterious nefesh and that leads to some kind of like transition to being a devout person. In fact, a person might want to like deny the experience of, of mysterious nefesh as they move on in life because they just don't know how to frame it. They don't have language for it. They don't have concepts for it, right? Just because they occurred to them doesn't mean that they know about a godly soul. They... It's like momentarily they became someone who they're not. So yeah, and I describe the experience of Mysterious Nefesh itself, it has this, I can't, at the same time as it feels very authentic and very genuine. But the minute you're not in that particular experience or the part of you that is being suppressed by that experience has no idea what to make of that. <coughs> Does that make sense? It's not like, oh, the person now becomes so like... And Mysterious Nefesh leads people to... like. The other thing is that, like, and if you do, like, just embrace mysterious nefesh, it can lead to some really weird consequences. Okay, there's a story they say of the Balshemta that um, the Balshemta was told that he is going to share his place in the world to come as Olam Haba with a certain Jew. Okay. Have I told you the story ever? Okay, a certain Jew. That this Jew's service of Hashem is on the same level as the Balshemta. It's 
Hashem was very curious who the Jews, and they told him from that. I mean, they are the people in heaven, the souls, the angels, I don't know. Never had communication from heaven that I'm aware of. So I don't know how this works. But he got the message somehow, and they told him where, which town, what the person's name was, and he goes to the town, and he started asking around for this person, and whatever the name was. Nobody knows who this person is. Eventually, someone says, ah, yeah, he, he lives like, you know, not in town, he lives like just on the edge of town. So he goes, and um, to the edge of town, he sees there's like this, like, this, this cottage, kind of run-down cottage, and there's a person who lived in the cottage, and um, he, Valshantar says to him, mind if I uh, come visit you? Says, sure. And so this man, he's, he's big. He's like just huge. And then just all day he just eats and eats and eats. Cooks food and eats food. Cooks food and eats food. It just becomes more and more corpulent. Doesn't, it doesn't seem to be doing any Torah, no mitzvahs. He just sits there and eats all day. He just gets bigger and bigger and his house is like messy. He doesn't seem to take care of anything else. Pashantu can't figure out, this is the person who I'm going to spend my Ganeidin with, I'm going to spend my own Haba with. It's... So eventually the Pashantu asks him, can, can, can I ask you like, What's with the eating? <laughs> There's a lot of food you eat here. He says, and so he says, like between bites, he says, yeah. See, when I was younger, so a bunch of non-Jews came by and ransacked wherever we, the village where we lived, and they grabbed my father, and they, they told him he has to convert. He has to accept Christianity. And if he doesn't, they're going to burn him. So obviously my father didn't convert. But my father was a very skinny man. So the fire burned out very quickly. And when I saw that, I made a vow that when they come to burn me, it's going to burn. <laughs> you understand? Like, the guy was not well, right? Like, it's, not, it's not a healthy place to live life from, right? But the mysterious nefesh, that thing that his father woke something up in him and he made this kind of like, and that like completely, like you didn't grow, like that's it. His life's mission is that the kid that Hashem I created is going to be a big one in like the physical sense. Now, there's something profound connection to Hashem there, right? So profound and so intense and so real that it's comparable to the Baal Shem Tov, right? But you understand that like that, that's not a... What happened to the normal human being that lives their life, right? You know what I'm saying? Mysterious never, it's not like, it, it, it's not a, it, there, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a psychological reality to mysterious nefesh that something inside, which is more me than what I, whoever I thought I was is, doesn't, that doesn't let me, can't do the thing that the outside world is pressuring me to do. And so, I act in ways that are just not consistent with who I thought I was. You know? And, and that doesn't necessarily lead to a healthy transition. I mean, again, it's, it's, a, you know, it's a phenomenon and it's occurred. And it's not a reflection of how religious and how pious and everything is good. So that's, that's the sense of mysterious Nefesh we're talking about. Questions? Okay, so now let's read this inside again. Therefore, even the most worthless of worthless and transgressors of Israelites, of the Jews, in the majority of cases, sacrifice their lives to the sanctity of God's name and suffer harsh torture rather than deny the one God. Although they are 
be boors and illiterate and ignorant of God's greatness. So what, what's the flow? The flow is we just said that our connection to Hashem genuinely comes from this level of the so-called Chachma, right? And Chachma manifests specifically in Imuna, right? Because the idea of trying to make sense and understand that's not where Hashem's presence lies, right? Well, if Hashem's presence with us, our connection to Him is, comes from Chachma, right? Then it makes sense that Mesiris Nefesh is not correlated with the degree to which a person understands Hashem, the degree to which a person is religious or pious, because it's not a, it's not a factor. Then, if I as a if Mesir's Nefesh was about me as a human being having a strong value for Hashem, strong value for connection to Him, right? Then you couldn't have the lowest of the Jews, the transgressors, right, and the ones who are ignorant of, of anything spiritual and theological ex, ex, exhibiting Mesir's Nefesh. But if the true connection to Hashem is not found in cultivating a conception of Hashem, a developing a sense of how you stand relative to Him and your way you're supposed to worship Him, but rather there's this innate part of every Jew where Hashem's truth is just sensed, and then that's manifest as a Muna, as we spoke about, and a Muna doesn't depend on, on any of these other things, well then it makes sense that Messiris Nefesh also doesn't make sense, right? Messiris Nefesh, rather than just being an effect of the Chachma on our psyche is the Chachma kind of overtaking the psyche. Um, has anyone ever seen a very bright flash of lightning? When you see a very bright flash of lightning, at the moment of the flash, is it easier to see or harder to see? Harder. Why? Because it's so sudden. So sudden. So what do you think Messiris Nefesh is? Rather than the Chachma exerting this kind of pressure on the psyche, which we know as a Muna, the Chachma just flashes with its full intensity. So it makes sense that there's no bearing on who, who you were before that flash doesn't matter, right? What the room looked like before the lightning struck doesn't matter. Because the, the, the sudden brightness is going to make the... You, that's what overtakes your vision, nothing else. Good? Okay. Now the next line um, is subject to dispute. Okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read the next line um, two ways. Okay. I'm gonna read it the way it's printed, and I'm gonna read it another way, and then I'll explain to you why I'm reading two ways. Whatever little knowledge they do possess, they do not delve therein at all, and they do not give up their lives by by reason of any knowledge or contemplation of God. I'll read that again. That's the first way. Whatever little knowledge they do possess, they do not delve therein at all. They do not give up their lives by reason of any knowledge or contemplation of God. Okay, in that way of reading it, are we talking about the same people we were talking about just the previous sentence? We're speaking about there's these people, they're lowly, they don't really, they don't take Judaism seriously, they're ignorant, right? And they, they have mysterious nefesh, right? They exhibit mysterious nefesh in the majority of cases, Right? Are we talking about that same group of people in the second sentence? Yeah. And whatever little knowledge they do have, they don't actually engage in or delve in it, right? They don't use that knowledge or contemplation of God to motivate their self-sacrifice, motivate their martyrdom. Okay? That's one way of reading it. I'm going to read it now another way. Even those few people who do possess knowledge, they do not delve into it at all and they do not give up their lives by reason of any knowledge or contemplation of God. That's not what's written here, right? But if you read it that way, we're talking about a different class of people. Now who are we talking about? 
We're talking about the people who are very scholarly, very knowledgeable, very pious. And so you think, okay, the people who are ignorant, the people who are irreverent, the people who are sinners and transgressors, it's obvious that if they were to give up their lives in an act of martyrdom, it obviously is not coming from their contemplation and knowledge and devotion to God because they totally lack that. But what about the big rabbis? What about the, the very righteous women, right? What about these people who really know and they've really cultivated a, 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 a sense of the centrality of Hashem in their lives? Those people, seemingly their martyrdom comes from a reflecting and a contemplating how important Hashem is to them and a willingness to die for that. And, if you, and, and what he's saying is that even those people who are very few, when they do actually give up their life, an act of martyrdom, it's not really at all based. In other words, like this. Rabbi Akiva and some guy who was like cheating everybody in business and, you know, and, 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 and not keeping Shabbos. It's not that Rabbi Akiva's martyrdom is coming from a deeper place where he has a greater understanding of God and that's why he's, no. The same thing that motivated that, that uh, sinner is also the same thing that drives Rabbi Akiva and his martyrdom. So in this reading, we're talking about the opposite extreme. Okay, now the, the issue is, um, because Hebrew has an interesting phenomenon, which is that there are words which are both nouns and verbs. Okay? If I say omrim, or omrim in modern Hebrew, how would you translate that for those of you who know any Hebrew? They say. They say of those who speak. Okay, right, it could be they say, right? Or they say, right, there's a, there's a plural, there's a, the verb of a plural saying that. So it's a they say, or it could be, you know, right, we say, right? Nachnom rim, heimom rim, right? So it could be a verb. But it could also be those who say. Shomer, or shomer, could be a guard, or a guarding, right? So you have this thing that the way he writes the Hebrew, he says, begam, and also bema'at, with the few sheyedim. So you could read it as the few who know or the little that they know. Both are legitimate translations of the Hebrew. So in one version, what you could say is that what the author is saying is that even that, that, that the little bit of knowledge of God or Judaism that these lowly people have is not a factor. Or you could read it that he's actually saying the opposite. The small minority of people who possess a genuine knowledge of Hashem's significance and greatness that ultimately is not really what motivates their self-sacrifice, their martyrdom. Now, with all of my uh, tremendous respect for the translator, I prefer the version he did not translate. Why do I prefer that version? Because it leads more people? I think it, it's not just, it makes the point clearer. Right? That even those people who, who you would think, right, have the capacity to give up their lives for the sake of a God who is significant and important to them, ultimately as Jews, that's not usually what happens. What usually happens is their martyrdom is the same mysterious nefesh, the same sense that something, some deeper part of me just can't go against Hashem. And, and, and at that point, they become on the same level as the lowest of the low, there's an equalizing factor happening between them. Okay. You heard of the Beis Yosef? Rabbi Yosef Cairo, you heard of him? Rabbi Yosef Cairo was 
the author of the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law, is one of the greatest halachic authorities of all time. Um, he had a magid. Do you know what a magid is? A magid is someone who speaks. So, um, like in Haggadah, right? If you say the Haggadah, right, it's this section that we do the speaking is called magid. Okay. Um, stories in the Talmud are called agada, same word. Okay. A magid, so... There are two, there's, there's the Magid, which is like a person whose job is a speaker. You know, if you want to sound religious, you call them a preacher. Right? Now you call them speakers. Right? Um, but there's also another kind of Magid, which is an angel that tells you stuff. Um, when we study Torah and do mitzvahs, we create angels. If you are extremely, extremely righteous and pious and spiritually sensitive and have all the right qualifications, you can actually create an angel that communicates with you. And the Beis Yosef, through his study of Mishnah, created an angel who communicated to him. So the angel introduced him as, I am the Mishnah that is spoken by your mouth. And he kept a diary in Aramaic of the things that the Magid told him, this angel told him. I don't know, right? you know, daily sessions, but this Magad would reveal things from the higher spiritual world to the Beis Yosef. So if you ever wonder the difference between like your regular rabbis and the Beis Yosef and you know, people like that, just, just ask yourself, does the rabbi in my Chabad house have a Magad telling him stuff about it? When he learns Torah, does it create an angel that communicates with him? Or just like, you know, something in spiritual realms that we don't really appreciate. Anyway, so the Magi told him at one point that he had served God and was so precious in Hashem's eyes that Hashem had granted him the merit of doing the ultimate mitzvah. What is the ultimate mitzvah? Dying on Kedusha, martyrdom. Did the Beis Yosef end up Dying a martyr's death. No. At some point, the Beis Yosef had done something that Hashem found displeasing, and he was, that merit was taken away from him. But he was given, later on, instead of, a, a, not, as, not as great a thing, which was that he was given the merit of writing the Code of Jewish Law to consolidate and ground halacha for the last few hundred years until Mashiach comes. So what does that tell you about martyrdom? Like, in terms of the godly significance, you could be the Beis Yosef, right, the code of Jewish law, and have all of halacha kind of, even doesn't always agree with you, but all centered around your approach to things and your project. You become the anchor point of halacha for the next, you know, half a millennium until Mashiach comes. Or you could die a martyr's death. Which one is a more godly thing? Martyr's death. Mm-hmm. Why? How does that make any sense? given what we've learned. Because what a martyr's death is not about your devotion to God. A martyr's death is about this deep truth of Hashem completely taking over the person. It's the highest, most intense manifestation of holiness. It often doesn't leave the person alive afterwards, which is a bit of a, I don't say a bit, is a major tragedy. So, but if we were to say that, you know, the Messiris Nefesh, 
the martyrdom of, of, the, of, the, of the tzaddik and the scholar is somehow different, it's not coming from Chachma, then, then it's just like any other thing. It's just like any other value a person has. You live up according to your values, live according to things that you understand their significance. And so in this reading, what he's saying is that even the most greatest people, when they actually are, are placed, God forbid, in these types of situations, it's nothing to do with who they are as a person and everything to do with the power of Chachma. Rather, without any knowledge and reflection, but as if they were absolutely impossible to renounce the one God without any reason or hesitation whatsoever. So how do you know that it's not mysterious nefesh? Like if you are experiencing something, how do you know if it's not mysterious nefesh? Just hesitation. Just hesitation. You're like, well, on the one hand, on the other hand. Okay. So for this, my, my favorite illustration of this is the fiddler on the roof. <laughs> so the fiddler of the roof um, which is a very interesting story in the original, actual written version. It's more, it's more complicated in the original, the, the, the written, written work. But what's the story of the Fiddler on the Roof? The story of the Fiddler on the Roof is that you have a Jew named Tevya. And what is Tevya? He's dead now. Oh. <laughs> yeah. The actor who played him. No, my cousin. Who's your cousin? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> He's a very, he's a very, very, very special person. My dad. You know he regularly learned Gemara. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. cool. yeah. um, anyway, he uh, so but Tevya, the the character, not the not the person who played him, Chaim Topol. So Tevi is a milkman, and um, so he's in the shtetl, and let's be honest, if you're a milkman in the shtetl, it's not exactly like you're the most sophisticated person. Go back to what I said about the wagon driver, right? Mm-hmm. The whole thing starts off, right? You know, what keeps us, what keeps us from toppling over is tradition, right? We're, like, his whole thing is, what do I know in life? I know that what my, my father did and my grandfather did, we just keep doing that, and everything will more or less be okay. Like, that's the level of his existence. And he has five daughters, and the play only three count, but... He has five daughters. And what's the problem with his daughters? They're modern women. Which means what? They think for themselves. Now, you have to realize, it's not like, it's not like Tevye thinks for himself. He also doesn't think for himself, right? He doesn't think for himself. What my father did, what my grandfather did, that's, you just keep doing that, and that's the way it works, and more or less, God takes care of things. That's how existence is, like but his daughter is already modern. They all think for themselves. Okay. So the first daughter comes... What? The first daughter, what happens is that he wants her to marry the rich butcher, which makes a lot of sense. Why? Because he's rich. And if you're rich, then you don't suffer. And if you're poor, you suffer. So why would you marry a poor person when you can marry a rich person? It's not so complicated, is it? But she doesn't want to marry. She wants to marry the poor tailor. Why? Because she loves him. Which is like a whole new phenomenon. What is this thing love? Why does it matter? Okay, fine. And he's back and forth and back and forth. On the one hand, she loves him. On the other hand, this and one, this and this and this and that. In the end, what does Tevye do? Tevye learns to embrace modernity. And if she'll be happy, then fine. And she'll be able to, she'll be, she'll be poured in love. Okay. Then the next daughter wants to marry the communist. Now, that's a really bad idea because you live in an autocracy. Marrying a revolutionary is like a good way to suffer in life. 
No, he's a Jewish communist. He's a Jewish yeah, communist. And so again, he's like, oh, yeah, but you know, if she's going to be in exile in Siberia, but happy, then okay, fine. So like Tevye's like, he's really modernized. Like, you know, personal experience, what speaks to you, right? Not everybody has to do what they were grown into. Like, it's all fine. It's good, right? He's like, he's learning. He's adapting. He's growing, right? Then what happens? His next daughter wants to marry the non-Jew. He's like, on the one hand, and then there's a famous scene in the play where he goes, there is no other hand! And he's something, he snaps. He snaps. Like, what happened? You're doing so well. You're progressing. You're adapting. You're acclimating to the modern notions of like thinking for yourself and, and, and doing what seems right to you. What, what, what happened? Right? Tevye's not, a, the thing is, is Tevye ideologically a traditionalist? Yeah. No, he's not. What happens to the first? No, think about it. What happens to the first thought? The whole play up till that point, the whole story up to that point. What does he do? He keeps changing. He keeps learning. He turns the idea. He goes back to his wife. He's like, "Do you love me? Maybe we should ask what love is." Also, he's open minded. Like, all he knows is tradition, but he's willing to embrace other things. Right? He's not a closed. He's not a. You see what I'm saying? Like, he, he, he's somebody. He's going. He's learning. He's adapting. It, it's not easy for him. Right? Changing is never easy. But he's, he's, he's adapting, he's changing, right? He's very traditional by, by upbringing, by experience, but he's not like, who needs this newfangled stuff? It's like, you know, he hears it, he hears it, he hears it, he hears it. Ah! Then there's a limit. I can't! There's no other hands, there's no other sides, there's no two sides of the argument. What happened? He's like... He, you know, if 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 if, 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 if he was if he was a stubborn brick by the first daughter, so you just say that's his personality, right? So, but when a person's back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, maybe this way, maybe that way, and then you decide this is the right approach for you, that's not mysterious nefesh. Even if you end up sacrificing, even if you decide to die. Rather, it has to be what? There's no, there's a sense, there's not, there's not, there is no other side. What's the underlying explanation? Tying it back to the beginning. This is because the one God illuminates and animates the entire nefesh, the entire soul, through being clothed in his faculty of Chachma, which is beyond any graspable and understood knowledge or intelligence. Right? The sense of Hashem in the Chachma enlivens the whole soul, and that Chachma takes over the person, at least in regard to this one moment, this one issue in their life, and at that point, there's no two sides. So then you go back to that question of why is it majority of cases? Right, so now you have to ask, why is it the majority of cases, and what about free will here, right? It seems that free will also went by the wayside a bit, right? Mm We'll have to talk. We'll we'll talk about those things tomorrow. Now, there's a lot more that needs to really be understood about what's going on here. Like why the chachma just can't abide by this denial of Hashem, right? Like it it makes a kind of very vague, intuitive sense, I think, but it hasn't fleshed out. That's really going to be chapter 19, which we're not going to start before Pesach. But you can read ahead if you want. Okay. 
I do want to wrap up with a few minutes. I want to wrap up tomorrow. Like I said, we're going to go into, the, we're going to talk about a bit of the question about the majority of cases and what has gone with the minority. And we'll talk about free will. Um, do you have, do you have this inside? Yes or no? So what I want to say is the answer is yes and no. Without, I mean, chapter 19 develops this idea a bit more, but I, I, because I don't want to leave it as everything so theoretical. When we say that you have something inside yourself, on the one hand, if it's inside you, then, then it's there to come out, right? It can come out. So it's there. But on the other hand, if everything we're saying is true, if you go looking for your mysterious nefesh, will you like? Are you likely to find it? No. no. This is why I want to go back. Like, like the the person the person pre the event that triggers the mysterious nefesh. There's nothing mysterious nefeshy about his psyche at all, right? <laughs> it just made up a word. Um, so much so it could be traumatic. So much so, right? That 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 you know. It, 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 there's a, this drama, right? So if you start looking for mysterious nefesh in your experience, if you haven't actually experienced it, it's they, not many things are not like many things you can imagine yourself there. Right. So, so this creates an interesting question: If mysterious nefesh is something that exists in me, but I can't really find it in myself, then what's the point of talking about it? You see what you, you see what I'm asking? Okay. Also, I don't know if this is what you're asking, but we were saying at the beginning about understanding like a phenomenon allows you to apply it in more cases. Can that relate at all to mysterious methods? It for sure does, but I but there, there's two things. There's understanding it so you could apply it, but then there's the question is does it, does it even exist within you? So there are kind of two ways to deal with this. Way number one is to look for a fact where you've already experienced mysterious nefesh, but in a subtler way. And once you recognize it in a subtle way, you mean, ah, so it does exist in me, right? That'd be one possibility. Another possibility we have a, we have something within us as people. Um, which is that when somebody else experiences something that has relevance to us, it, it speaks to us, it touches us, it resonates with us. Does that make sense? Um, this is why, you know, literature and movies work, right? So if a person tells stories or encounters other Jews, Masira Snefesh, What should be the case is that should resonate on some level as it speaks to me, it touches me. Maybe, maybe not all of me, but there's some part of me that feels like, yes, yes, there's something to that. But if I just take the idea of a serious nefesh in the abstract and then just posit that like exists inside me, it's not going to, it's not going to have a, it's not going to have a, it's not going to be very useful. In other words, talking about mysterious nefesh as a concept and then, and then just saying, well, and I have mysterious nefesh is kind of, 
So the Alter Rebbe actually does, and Tanya, he speaks about, you know, the, the, the lowest of the low, who even they have mysterious nefesh. Uh, you know, I'm very happy this is not true of us, but like when you know people who are so lowly, and then they have, you know, they've, they've given up their lives rather than, uh, rather than, rather than deny Hashem. And that, you know, you know people like that, you know, you've seen that, right? And it, it, it you don't, it's, it, it resonates with you in some way, right? That it's much easier for you to like say, yeah, I have that in me, even if I'm not feeling it, even if I haven't experienced it myself directly. So there is some element that, that about this topic, which is not just understanding the serious nefesh, which is what Alta was focusing on. There's also this element of, of recognizing that it exists inside of you. And that's a little bit hard because it's so unlike ourselves. And so we need kind of some way to, to not just say, oh, that's a nice idea, it's a nice theory, it's a nice idea. It's, uh, you know, Alta says this beautiful thing, but rather, no, no, like, like, I, that exists in me. Like, I, I, I know that for myself on some level. Once I have that, then a lot of the ideas out there would say have some ground to stand on. Okay? Which is why it's very important, especially if we live, thank God, in an era where martyrdom is not something that we encounter in our lives. It's very important to do what? To tell stories of Messias Nefesh. And it's especially important to tell stories of Messias Nefesh to who? Children. To children. Mm. Because children, they pick up on that. Now, I'm not saying if you haven't heard stories like that before when you're a child, like it's, you're doomed, but it is, it's important. Okay? And remember the, the rule about mysterious nefesh. Um, and people always want to have a healthy Judaism, right? Should I say people like Judaism, they want their Judaism to be healthy? Like, how do you have a healthy, how do you have a healthy sense of, you know, of a, of religiosity, how do you have a sense, a healthy sense of this, a healthy sense of healthy, how do you prove in a healthy way? What is the proof that Judaism is not always supposed to be healthy? Messias Nefesh. Messias Nefesh is not healthy. First and foremost, it's, on the simple level, it's not physically healthy, it results in death or suffering. And then psychologically, it's not healthy, it's traumatic for a person. But there's something very, very real and true about it. Now, what we're supposed to do with that idea, what we're supposed to do with that phenomenon, how we're supposed to understand and apply it to our actual, right? Not the altar wants us like, you know, having mysterious nefesh all day, every day. That's a little bit ridiculous. He wants something else. Good? Do you experience mysterious nefesh outside of the context of death and suffering? Um, what answer would you like? <laughs> what? Can you run for your life if your life's not in danger? Yeah. Yes. So what? Like you're running towards something good. That's a ten k. Like what? In what way is it relevant? If we can't, if we can't, chapters 23, 20, 24, and 25. Very, very simple way of putting it is like this. There's something called integrity. Okay. Dr. doesn't use this word, but I think this is a way of putting it. What does it mean to have integrity? 
which most people lack. You have to work on it. But it's a, it's a, it is a normal human thing to have integrity. It's something special. You have to work on it, but what does it mean to have integrity? Being in line with your real self. Okay, so give me, an, give me a practical example of having integrity. Um, living up to your morals. That's a practical example. Not stealing. No. Mm-hmm. Not stealing. Not cheating systems. Keeping a promise. See, the thing is, you're, you're talking about actions. They don't necessarily require integrity. Let me give you an example of having integrity, okay? Um, and I'm going to specifically use one that doesn't involve obligations to other people so you can hear the idea of the integrity element more. Okay. You have unexpected afternoon off. And you figure, oh, that's nice. I can just, like, you know, hang out, right? And then there's a voice inside you says, you know, I, I should, you know, that extra half hour, like, that could be useful, that could be productive, right? And so you have this back and forth between, like, it's more comfortable to, like, you know, just, you know, hang out and not do anything too demanding. But then there's this voice that says you really should use the time productively, right? Then there's a third voice, which doesn't always happen. And that third voice says, life is made of little moments. Am I a time waster? That's who I am. Or am I not a time waster? Like, as a general question, who am I? How do I see myself? Because if I have the truth, because if, I mean, if, 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 if I'm not a time waster, I'm a person who values the limited amount of days that I have in this world to accomplish things that are important then I have to deny that in order to like just hang out and do nothing for this afternoon just because it's unexpectedly whatever I thought. And if I'm gonna just do that, then, you know, then, then that's what my life is made of, which means then I'm, I'm just not being honest with myself. You know, integrity has to do with, with realizing that you, you can't have it both ways. You can't be who you are and live not that way. And that's a moment by moment, situation to situation, awareness and decision-making process, yeah? Make sense? Okay. Overly simplified tremendously, okay? And there's a reason why I don't want to do this because the reason why the word doesn't just go from here right to this point. He doesn't go from here to the end of chapter 25 because there's, there's a lot missing. And there's a certain, I would say, almost aggressiveness, which doesn't really need to be part of this picture, the way I'm presenting it, because we're missing a lot of details. But, which is like this. Would, personally, would I die horrible death in order not to convert to another religion? And that's a rhetorical question. The idea is to say, oh, yes. Okay. 
is there really any difference between going to get baptized and rushing through Birchus Amazing after I finished eating? There's no difference. So what's wrong? So there's no integrity then. That's what Dr. wants. That doesn't mean you're now experiencing Mr. Nefesh, does it? It means you're using Mysterious Nefesh as the anchor point of developing a certain kind of integrity. You want real Mysterious Nefesh. So you don't even get the Mysterious Nefesh. You're, not you're utilizing Mysterious You understand what Mysterious Nefesh So for this, you have to understand what's really underlying the Chachma, right? Like, you have to go beyond just, well, that's Christianity. It's, 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 it's idol worship. Like, you have to really understand what is Chachma, what's Chachma's issue with idolatry. What, and we have to flesh out what's under, underlying the whole phenomenon. All we've done now, which is we said this phenomenon is attributed to Chachma. It's the Chachma that caused it. Okay, but we haven't gone into any detail. Once you go into that detail and then you flesh out what that really means, all of its implications, a person with integrity has to then apply that absoluteness that Mysterious Nefesh demands as an idea into every aspect of Judaism, including not rushing through a benching. And then the author says, now just, you know, Do it. you have the free will, to live, free will to live with integrity. Every human being has, right? That's nothing special about it, about, you know, you don't have to be a lofty person. You know, assuming you're not a child and you're not mentally incapacitated, every person has the ability to live with integrity. It's a, it's a choice. It's an ongoing choice. It is okay. interesting that integrity is related to Mr. Snuffash. Being that, in that moment, it's like... Right, but the, so the Rebbe actually points out in a note in a mimer, that this is not the same, what, I'm, what the author wants to get to is not actual Mysterious Nefesh. Mm. It's drawing on the power of Mysterious Nefesh. The way, the way I phrase it is that it creates the anchor that you build your integrity around. But it's not real Mysterious Nefesh. It was actualized Mysterious Nefesh. <laughs> you know, it would, be, it would be a totally different thing. And, and actual Mysterious Nefesh needs to be triggered by, by something. To trigger actual mysterious nefesh is, is, you know, either you're an incredibly sensitive person or you're living in a time of a severe religious persecution. One of the two. Those are the only options that triggers it? There's subtle versions, you know, like when, when someone like asks you point blank to like deny being a Jew or something. Things like that. But those are often like very, there's a kind of like, yeah. Um, you can't, you know, people say, how do I, like can, can, like, can you bring yourself to actual Messias Nefesh? The answer is no, you can't. If they're the similar, like, actual Messias Nefesh, you cannot. That has to be triggered. So the author is actually not interested in actual Messias Nefesh. Thank God, because, like, I, I am happy. I'm, good. I'm very happy living my life. I don't want to die. <laughs> Kind of, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, but the, the whole thing is not going to work unless that anchor point is something you take very, very seriously and, is, and, and acknowledge is very real about yourself. You can not, there is, but it depends what you mean by it. 
Is there a concept of, of a living with this actual mysterious nefesh? Yeah. You know anybody from Russia? From the communist era? You ever spoke to them what life was like? That's called living with mysterious nefesh. You don't want that. Do you know which kind of how much psychological like repression that causes? Just think about it. There's no room for I'm in the mood, I'm not in the mood, I like, I enjoy, the, I, 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 I care. Like, there's no space for any of that. It's like, a, it's, it's like it's a living in a war zone. That's what it is. It's not. There are things that are rooted in the idea of mysterious nefesh that are also called mysterious nefesh. For instance, the Rebbe spoke many times that the mysterious nefesh of our generation is not to be embarrassed about our Judaism. And meaning that we're tapping into this idea of mysterious nefesh and anchoring and living that integrity gives us the ability to transcend the discomfort we have of being a minority in a pluralistic society. Okay, fine. Okay. But, and, and, and that might be actually harder than it is to like, you know, maintain a basic level of religious observance in time, times of persecution. But it's not the same thing. And you don't experience that intensity. You know, the, 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 there was a chassid who, in Russia, used to spend the entire Shabbos learning chassidus. Like literally, the whole Shabbos learning chassidus. Other than davening, davening and chassidus, that's it. He didn't talk to anybody. Like, there was no, like, the kiddush ate very quickly, went back, and then the whole day sat in front of the Sefer learning chassidus. That was it. And he came to America. They don't learn chassidus. Went to Shul, davened the minion, you know, whipped something up to say at the Shabbos table, and that was it. And his wife was very unhappy. And I don't remember if the Rebbe, they went to the Rebbe, Rebbe, I don't remember exactly the details, but, but eventually he went to ask, like, like what, what happened? And he said, it was very simple. If I had given myself a single moment to think of what it was costing me to keep Shabbos in Soviet Russia, I wouldn't have been able to do it. So his sense was that I have to be completely oblivious to what I'm doing to myself to keep Shabbos. Now I'm in America, I keep shouting. <laughs> I'm not interested in learning Exodus. I'm not, a, I'm not a holy person. But I know that the, being a, like, we all know this, right? There's certain things, if you think about it, it just gives you so much dread that you just can't deal with it. And he's like, and I have to keep Shabbos, I have to keep Shabbos. And so the mysterious never is like, you cannot let yourself be aware of what you're doing to your life by keeping Shabbos. The whole Shabbos, he had to numb himself to the fact that he's keeping Shabbos. And his way of doing that was with Exodus. It's... Uh, I mean, in one hand, it's a very lofty and profound thing. On the other hand, that's not, a, that's, not a, that's not a state we're trying to achieve. There's a truth in that we're trying to draw upon. And one, it's important to know the difference between those two things. We don't want to die, and we don't want to be, we don't want to be repressed. We want to be in a state of redemption. The truth is found in the serious nature. We have to bring it out of that form. And, you, know, you don't want to get struck by lightning. You want a functional computer and electric lights. You know? Good? So tomorrow we'll have a discussion about this.